Hi, welcome. This is Living at the 45 today with legendary tennis player Roscoe Tanner. Uh, my name is Jack Brody. I'm your host. And let's get started. Uh, Roscoe, hi. Please say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. Hi, Jack. Uh, yeah, yeah. Nice nice to know you for the first, it's our second time. Uh, we were chatting just a minute ago. Uh, I met uh, Roscoe through my coach, Gary Groleman, uh, in Peachtree World of Tennis. Remember the WCT clubs, Lamar Hunt? Yes, I sure do. I remember that. I met you with Gary. Uh, uh -huh. Uh, you, you hit some, you were hitting some kick serves, which you almost, you never almost did, but you were hitting some kick serves and I was floundering. I was 17 or 18 and you were 21, I think 22. Uh, you were just out of college, uh, just out of Stanford. And, uh, yeah, like I said, I was floundering training you know, because Gary said, go ahead, try to return these, you know, and it was before you became you, you know what I mean? Well, one of the things about my serve too is, there's a there's my serve tends to bounce a little bit more sideways than others others tend to jump higher mine stays lower but sideways yeah well you had a true you know you had a true slice and um yeah. and those are pretty un, those are pretty underutilized today well that's not true there are some greats that use a slice well and the doll uses a slice very well uh but yeah everyone's gone to the big first serve and then the kicker on the second uh but uh, yeah, no, I think the slice, I, I, I coach, uh, I coach quite a bit myself and uh, uh, you know, a lot of kids uh, I coached went to orange bowl and Kalamazoo good players. You probably know some of them, but uh, yeah, I always, uh, it's funny. I always really preach the slice. I said, you just don't know the slice is so deadly and the kick is so readable. And, you know, if you're a decent player, you jump on top of it and a flat serve is not that hard to return anymore. I mean, unless you're, you or Roddick or, uh, you know, someone like that. But also those guys are standing 10 feet behind the baseline. So there's no point trying to hit it through them because it just, you, by hitting it hard, you just make sure it reaches them. But uh, yeah. it's cool because it bends away and it stays low and they don't like low balls too much. That That's right. Especially those Western grippers. You're absolutely yeah. right. Those were the good old days, huh? Lamar did a lot for tennis. He put, he put a lot into it and, and did a lot, been bringing prize money in at a little bit higher level. Yeah, he really did. And he, I don't know if he gets all the credit he deserves because people don't really know him today. And when I was a kid, he was everything. I mean, all those, the, the Dallas tournament. And uh, I know J.A. was the uh, touring pro at my club, uh, John Alexander uh, at the uh, yeah. Peachtree World of Tennis where Gary was the coach. And uh, yeah, you floated by one day uh, just for a little while and uh, hit some serves. I think Gary was talking to you while you were practicing your serve. And I was, uh, I think I was 16 or 17 trying to return them. And uh, that was fun. And, and that was an awful long time ago, but like I said, those kind of were the good old days. And um, you know, Lamar and he had control of the first half of the year. There was uh, the Grand Prix. That's right. Donald Dell and Jack Kramer mm -hmm. in the first half are in WCT. And we traveled all over the world. Everybody wanted to get in on WCT because that was the best prize money. That's and, right. And first half of the year with the finals in Dallas. And when, uh, I loved it. When was that? 78 or 79? No, it was before that because I turned pro in 72 and I'm pretty sure that it was since 73, I was playing WCT. 
That makes sense because I graduated high school and that's when I went down there. So that's, uh, I was actually from Connecticut where, you know, you don't have a lot of tennis players. I mentioned to you before, uh, Paul Gherkin, a, a blast from the past. Uh, yeah. He, uh, he was the big player in my, in my neck of the woods. And then of course, McEnroe from Port Washington uh, came yeah. out a few years later. Um, well, when, I, when I first turned pro, I uh, played, you know, you turn pro after the NCAAs in June. And then, then I played that half a year. Then at the end of that year, before 73, which I was going to play WCT, I get a phone call at my house from uh, Arthur Ashe. And it says, you know, Roscoe, I don't have a regular doubles partner. Would you like to play doubles together all next year? And he was number one in the world at that time. Yeah. Like, you kidding? <laughs> Love to. And, and so we played our first tournament was in uh, England, in London. Uh, we played somewhere up north of London. And then the semis and finals were down at the Albert Hall. Oh yeah. And that was a, we were in the semis of the doubles down there playing against um, Stolly and Rosewall. So I'm playing on the court with Ash, Stolly and Rosewall, who I'd only seen on TV before. And we're playing in the Albert hall where everybody's wearing tuxedos and champagne corks are popping everywhere. And I mean, it was quite an experience. Well, I tell you, you know, I was going through some stuff last night. In fact, I watched your whole fifth set. Uh, against Borg and uh, I, I had to I had to I'm, I'm a tennis nut which is why I do the show and I've got a, a presence these days on the internet and, and I, I had to watch the fifth set last night and yeah. uh, it's just the word kept coming up for me which was iconic it seemed like I don't know correct me if I'm wrong but it seemed like everything you that time for starters that time 73 75 right in there Battle of the Sexes, Arthur Ashe and all the, remember all that stuff going on. And, and that was some heavy times right there. Um, and, and, you know, it's funny. I had a black doubles partner. Uh, you probably don't know him, but maybe you do. You ever heard of Weldon Rogers? Yes, sure do. I've no heard kidding. Of him, but I've heard of him, yes. And he was number one in the country in 73 in the ATA. Remember the ATA? <laughs> I played some of those tournaments. I was literally the, the pastiest white guy. I was the only white guy in those tournaments, but we played dubs together. We won one. And, uh, and uh, yeah. And then the word that kept coming up for me last night was iconic. I mean, you played in an iconic time when money was just getting into tennis and it was just getting big. I was thinking last night, you, what a life. I mean, seriously what a life you came up during the battle of the sexes uh arthur ash and all that stuff that was going on with the olympics and arthur ash and apartheid happening in africa and uh and, and you had an iconic coach at stanford come on dick gould i know dick i've known him for 30 years right. probably one of the nicest guys in tennis period i mean i don't know if technically he could take a beginner to pro but he sure was a hell of a college coach and well, uh, the, un, unbelievable recruiter yeah one of the things that yeah, he was unbelievable recruiter and and fundraiser um i mean he got a family the taub family who were ucla graduates to donate money to stanford for a tennis stadium but but anyway the oh, um yeah, I mean Gould was was incredible, but I know the I know the Hug family. I didn't realize that was a story behind that. Um, yeah, yeah, and then, um, but but Dick had the ability 
we would have, we might have an average season going through the season. I mean, we might have a couple losses. And then when it came to the pack was the pack eight back then the pack eight tournament and NCAAs, we were the best every time uh, we, that would be our best results. And, and so we had a lot of years where we were okay throughout the season. I mean, we were maybe, maybe one in one with SC and UCLA, but at the pack eight, we beat them. And then we'd take the top four, because back then the NCAA tournament was every team got to send four. That's right. And That's right. Went into one big draw, and you get one point for every match you win. And and so it was it was a little bit different, but he had his teams ready to go, and we did. You know, our first year there, we did. I got to the finals of the of the singles and the doubles. We ended up finishing third, which before that we had been barely in the top ten. And, and then uh, after that, the year after that, um, we came in second behind uh, UCLA and then second behind Trinity my junior year. But it was, it, was, uh, it, it was always right down to the semis and finals as to who was going to win those tournaments. Or, you yeah. know, as, and, and it was just, it was really exciting. Um, but I'll never forget as a freshman in the semis, I played Zrovko Mincek. Um, from I remember that name. Yeah. And I ended up winning 10-8 in the fifth because the semis and finals were three out of five sets. I won 10-8 in the fifth. And then in the, in the doubles, I played with Rob Ripner, who was a senior, a great doubles player. Yeah. And we played against Van Dillon and George Taylor. And we won 7-5 in the fifth. These are both matches on Saturday. So then, so then we play... Um, you know, then I come out to play the finals of the singles. I'm like a dish rag. Yeah, I was going to say, you must have been toast. <laughs> yeah, because also at 6-5 in the fifth in the doubles, Ripner says to me, he's unbelievable at net, quick hands all over the place. He says to me, I am so nervous. He says, I'm not going to touch a ball this game. <laughs> I go, come what? on. I said, no, I said, I'm going to serve. You got to cross and put everything away. And he goes, no, I'm not touching a ball. He says, I'm scared. So I serve. I think he's joking. I serve. They hit a ball right at him. He doesn't move. <laughs> he doesn't hit it. And I'm just going, he's serious. He's not gone. And so I just had to serve his first and second serve as hard as I could for the whole game. And luckily we ended up winning it. But it was uh, those matches back in college were some of the best memories ever. And then, like you were saying, with Arthur, um, playing with Arthur and seeing what he had to go through. Yeah, well, that, that's my, that was one of my first questions. What the hell was that like, playing with Arthur? Because I can only tell you quickly, when I played with Weldon, we played the Watch Tour. You ever heard of that one? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Johan Creek won that, I believe. And, um, and there were clubs in Florida, and I hate to say this, this was back in the mid to late 70s, late 70s, 78, 79, that you could still see the signs. No blacks, no Jews, no dogs. I, and I'm not kidding. I saw one of those, and I'm Jewish. Yeah. So between he and I, we were we were an enigma. You know what I mean? We were we were the minority team, and it yeah. kind of freaked it kind of freaked us out a little bit. But you, with you know the number one player in the world, you know with those snowshoe rackets. I mean, everything about Arthur was so different. You know, even his serve with the quick yeah. step, the two the two step serve. Right. Um, you know. He, he really changed the games in a lot of ways, but there was still that stigma. What was it like traveling with him? And, 
I'd really like to know that. Well, I mean, there was there were some unbelievable situations in the locker room where because he wasn't a guy that would stand out and put his fist in the air. He, he went to the back rooms to get something done, um, you know, and didn't and didn't blast anybody publicly and all that sort of stuff. And they used to come into the locker room yelling at him because he wouldn't, you know, stand out and, and make a public speech and all that sort of stuff um, about that. And he just was more interested in getting something done. Um, he didn't care about getting a lot of credit or all that kind of thing. Um, but he and I had some unbelievable conversations as we traveled around the world, because when in those days with your doubles partner, that was sort of, that's your team, man. That's your whole, that's your whole freaking team. Now you got chiropractors, nutritionists, massage therapy. I remember the seventies. Uh, yeah. Your doubles partner was everything. Yeah. And you um, practiced. You taught, you coached each other, everything because you had the exact same schedule, and and um, so we we had some unbelievable conversations about us playing together. A white guy from Tennessee, right, right, guy. that's right, <laughs> cracker, all <laughs> together, and and uh, it was it was amazing. I mean, it was an experience on their face because he basically I had never traveled the world. And he had, and so he showed me how to live in the world. And um, it was it was really, I mean, what a nice, solid, straight guy. Um, he, you know, it was, uh, and he didn't understand how some of these guys thought that they would get something done by getting up and screaming in somebody's face. Um, he, he said, all that does is make people stiffen up and don't do anything. And, and uh, now he worked hard behind the scenes. He just didn't publicly come at anybody. Yeah, and, I think I did. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, so he was just, uh, he was an amazing, amazing guy. And different things that he, like you saw the, the signs that said, you know, don't come here, don't come there. We would play because back then a lot of the, a lot of the tournaments were held at, at very high level country clubs. And, and, um, he had to endure some difficulties in that era. So, but he, I mean, he got right through it didn't worry about it and just played his, played his matches. And, and he obviously won a lot. <laughs> yeah, he did. Um, and, and it was funny that you guys were doubles partners because he was known for his serve as well. Uh, yeah. And I can't even imagine what an, <laughs> what a difference. I didn't know your first match was against Stolly and Rosewall. But you got these two guys chipping and finessing and two big blasting servers. It must have been quite a match. <laughs> it, was, it was funny because within that, we're, we're ahead, I'm, and it's my serve, and we're serving for the first set. And Arthur says, you know, I've heard a lot about, we're on the changeover, he says, I've heard a lot about your serve, but I haven't seen anything. He says, I want to see four aces. And I said, Arthur... That's Stolly and Rosewall over there. Let's just win the game. <laughs> and he goes, no, I want aces. So first point, ace. Second point, ace. Third point, Stolly got it back. Arthur goes, I knew you couldn't do it. And, That's and funny. we won the game. So then it comes down to serving for the match. And he goes, okay, now you got one more chance. I want four aces. I said, please, let's match. And he goes, no, nope, I want four aces. So First point, ace. Second point, ace. Third point, ace. And with that, he's standing up at the net, and he turns around to me and winks. And the fourth one was serving to Rosewall, and he just ticked the end of his racket. 
because the courts back then were that Supreme Court was very fast. But so he just ticked it. Yeah, it was. He did nice. <laughs> that's <laughs> funny. Yeah. So he had a pretty good sense of humor. That, that's nice to hear. We, we, um, we joked around with each other on a lot of subjects. A lot of them can't talk about these days, but we joked around a lot. Sure. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about Billy Jean. I, I um, promoted uh, for a company called Group Dynamics uh, out of Santa Monica. We promoted the Virginia Slim, uh, the Avon tour. It was it was the Virginia Slims and then switched over to Avon. Um, and I used and I used to warm up a little bit with Billie Jean King, but she was kind of like that, too. Kind of dry, kind of funny. But she was also like Arthur because she she did a lot behind the scenes. I mean, you know, that's another thing iconic. I, I'm going to keep coming back to that word because that's all I could think of last night when I did a little. And I knew you pretty well. I grew up, uh, you know, in your, you know, you were 21. I was 17 and all the way up. So and, and I knew Gary who knew you. So that, you know, I could always follow you and some other guys that I actually knew. And uh, that word iconic always comes up. But such an iconic time in the mid 70s because you got Billie Jean fighting for uh, she ended up with Title Nine. You got Arthur Ashe, you know, doing what he did so well, being like, he was like Federer a little bit before Federer. I mean, he was a classy gent and yeah. he, um, he got a lot done. So yeah, no, that was, like I said, a very iconic time. Uh, and you must've known Billy Jean as well. Sure. I knew Billy. And, and uh, one of the things that was funny, I mean, we formed the ATP during my career. That's and, right. Uh, That's right. I came over and I landed at Queens. I flew in, landed at Queens and came to the Gloucester Hotel and I ran into Tom Gorman and he goes, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm getting ready to play Wimbledon. And he goes, well, we're not playing. And I go, what? And he goes, no, he says, so we're, we're not playing. And the whole story about Nikki Pillick and all that kind of stuff. That's right. And um, I remember the meetings at the Gloucester Hotel in their ballroom. They had all the chairs up and we had all the, all the players in the room. And it was very tense because here, um, Stan Smith is not going to be able to defend his title. Rosewall was probably his last time ever trying to play it. Yeah. Um, and and um, so it was like a lot of big things were, were happening. And then we decided we weren't going to play. And we were going to back Nicky Pillick in his efforts because he wanted to be able to not play Davis Cup. And, and uh, so that, that happened. And Wimbledon ended up being just fine. They played with the next level players and, and they, they had good crowds and everything was fine. But um, it, was, uh, it was a major deal in tennis because now the players were going to start to have a voice. Um, before that, um, the players we really didn't get to have a voice. Like the USTA could tell us that we, or USLTA at that time, could tell us That's that right. we been playing after Wimbledon that we had to come back and play in the U.S. tournaments. They could tell players when and where they could play. Once we formed the ATP, they couldn't do that anymore. So, and it was the same with all the different associations. They could tell the players what they were going to do, but that was when it was an amateur game. And now it's professional and we were earning a living, so it didn't make sense to, um, for them to be telling us what we could do. And that was what it was all about. And now... Yeah, I'm thinking what what a what a par what a parallel going on right now, but with uh, with uh, you know the Russian players and Medvedev and Rublev and all the women that couldn't play Wimbledon and then they got stripped of their points. In a way, it's come full circle politically yeah. in tennis. Yeah. People don't realize that they think this is the biggest thing to ever happen, and I'm like, 
no, no, no. You weren't around in the mid seventies. That's when it really happened. Uh, yeah. I, I always think it's rehashed now because that's well, when these issues were really, really big. Well, and that's where, when I saw where, um, what's his name, Djokovic was trying to form a new tennis players association for prize money. I'm going, well, what happened to the ATP? That's what that was supposed to be about. <clears throat> but the ATP, I guess, has become, because it owns the tour for the most part, it's become, come here, Minnie. <coughs> you have to edit this part. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> but, but, um, and the thing was, you know, I always think when I heard all this, this stuff about that he didn't like the ATP, I was going, well, why wouldn't he like the ATP? It's run by the players. It is the players' organization. But apparently it's not listening to the players very well. And, and um, it's become almost like the International Tennis Federation used to be. So it's, it's like uh, you kind of lost, lost track of what they were formed for. And, yeah, and they all kind of sell out. They kind of sell out, really. Yeah, and if he's talking about prize money breakdowns, the, the ATP can change that. They don't, he doesn't need to form a new association to change <coughs> the breakdowns. Well, I think what happened is Liv is just getting so so much traction now in golf that maybe the tennis players, especially the um, uh, Djokovic because of the vaccine, and then the Russian players, they're probably like, hey, there's more money to be made possibly with something like this Liv. I mean, that's all I can see is a correlation yeah and i i could see when i saw that about live i was thinking next thing you'll see is the is the uh, tennis players talking to saudi arabia also that's what that's exactly what i said it's exactly what i said because there's plenty of money there yeah. and they love their tennis all over the world and and they're going to go where the money is <laughs> and one of the things that i used to think was so neat about golf is they knew their history yeah, history, and now it's it's uh, money is busting that all up. Um, that's because to me, I, I think in in tennis, you ask young tennis players about older tennis players, and they don't know any of the names. No, no. In golf, golf, they know the history a little bit better, and so I always thought, well, golf will never, you know, go down that line. Well, when you got hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's awfully hard to tell a guy not to accept it. You know I mean? How do you, how do you tell a guy that if they're offering you a hundred million dollars, how do you tell them to say no? <laughs> yeah. 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 And the crowds will all be there because they're going to follow the players. Right. Um, yeah, no, I, I tell you, things are changing again, I think. Uh, and this has been a very strange couple of years for tenant for everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for all of us, I don't, I don't know what you were doing during COVID, but uh, lucky for me, I was, uh, I, I know he's older than you. You know, Julian Krinsky by any chance? I don't. I don't think I do. He got to no. the quarters of Wimbledon one year. He's 73 this year. And he had a private court in La Jolla. And so he and I played every day. We didn't miss a day. And we played every day and we had a ball. And I was coaching uh, about 30% of my players that were serious, you know, uh, the other 70% you lost. But uh, it was it was actually a neat time for me. COVID. I read thirteen or fourteen books. I hadn't or twenty twenty books. I hadn't done that in years, and they were just fictional. You know, just fun books. What was interesting um, down here in Florida, we were still able to play, and and the 
you know, they had tournaments and different things. You had different restrictions on it. each had your own balls and all that kind of stuff. But, but um, a number of players from California came to Florida during that oh. time. The, of um, course they did. Of course they did. Are um, being coached by Stella Sampras. Or actually, it's her daughters. Um, the Websters came here to Florida and were playing because they couldn't really play in, in L.A. So it was like, it was kind of, I mean, we, we had very good tennis going on during that time. Too. Did the UTR tournaments still keep going during that time? A lot of them. It was. It was I heard. Late. Yes, they were still going. Huh. <laughs> That's funny. Well, I, that was one of my, my one of my ending questions, but I might as well ask now. How does it feel to live in the freest state with the best, uh, you know, the best governor? In my opinion, I think it's I think it's fantastic. I mean, what he what he's continuing to do is to try to put decisions in the hands of the people um, as to what you want to do, and which is what our country's supposed to be all about. I hear you, and. Um, it's 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 they we have a in a lot of states California being one where the government thinks that they know better than you on how you should live, and, sure. And so that's that's what um, here we don't have that we have a governor that, that tell parents get to decide how their kids are taught in school. Yep. Um, and and so I think we it is it's the it's the best here. And yeah, I agree. I agree. The people are flocking to Florida right now. Your your home prices are finally going up. I remember during the 70s and 80s, man, you could buy that stuff. You know, 10 years would pass. That's still two and a quarter for this house. You know, yeah. but not anymore. No, it's exploding now. The the um, the big thing is, is that hopefully the people that are moving here because right. of the way don't want to try to change the politics here. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. I don't think that. Uh, hopefully, that won't happen. But uh, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure they have their plans to try and make it happen. I'm in sort of a middle purplish state. I'm over here in Colorado. I I was in San Diego almost all my life, and mm -hmm. just moved here a year ago to be with uh, soon to be a granddad. Hopefully, That's so uh, yeah. So uh, so yeah. So we we're a mount we're mountain folk now and. I can tell you the mountains are, are kind of more like Florida, you know, just leave us be, let's do our thing. And then in the city, of course, Denver and maybe Boulder, it's a little bit more of that, you know, whatever, cradle to grave or whatever you want to call that. So Colorado's kind of interesting that way. I have a, a closeness to Colorado because the first pro tournament I ever won was WCT in Denver. Oh, that we was in that the, must have been it was a cowboy town back in the 70s jesus yeah, yeah. yeah. there was um, a restaurant colorado mining company still uh, there still there tennis that owned it back then and he would give us the restaurant every night so so we cool. would come and eat there for free and whatever and other people were eating there too but our meals I mean, it was it was great um, and we had our own we had our own uh, cars from the tournament with our name on it. it was WCT. That's right. And we'd go be there. And one night, one of the Australians, I won't use his name, got fairly well bombed because he'd had a lot of beers. Yeah. And for his car, he came out in the parking lot looking for his car, couldn't find it. But he saw a car with, with lettering on it. 
So he got in and under the back seat and went to sleep. It was a cop car. <laughs> oh, classic. Classic. Yeah, no, those Aussies, man. I uh, When I was coaching at Harry Hopman's down in uh, the west coast of Florida back in the mid-70s, yeah, those Aussies and those New Zealanders, man, they knew how to party. I'll tell you what. Uh, that was our last tournament on the tour that year, on the WCT tour that year. And we had a party there the last and gave out awards. And one of the awards was the Mishit Award. Who Mishit Award? <laughs> and the voting came in and it was labor. And, and guys, the Auss Aussies on the committee for it said, no, 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 no. We can't give the Mishit Award to Rod Labor. And the, the reason we remembered it is that he'd mishit the ball, but it always went in. So it made it more of an impression. But so we changed it. And the second place voted was Bjorn Borg. I was going to say, I remember Borg used to shank him once in a while with that big Western grip. I remember he used to shank him into the crowd. Yeah. So we had Rod Laver present the oar to Bjorn Borg. <laughs> for the board. <laughs> that's classic. No, I never heard of that. One. That must have been in, real insiders. That, that's a good one. An award for the cheapest guy on tour. You know, a guy who never bought a beer for anybody else and uh, or and, and there was just a whole lot of different awards it was funny that is funny hey big question of course uh, now everyone's got to know uh, did, you, did you have any rocky mountain oysters that's the question <laughs> no i did not <laughs> <laughs> what they were <laughs> but i did my first i did my first week here i had to uh, they're kind of weird, but I also ate the worm when I was 20 on my 21st birthday. So, you know, I mean, I'm one of those friggin' idiots, you know, <laughs> forget it. I'm at a cocktail party for, for Germans, and I'm with Arthur and we're going along with a buffet thing and he picks up this one stuff's white and he eats it and he goes, try some of that. And I go, what is it? And he goes, no, just try some. And I said, no, I don't eat, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> He goes, just put it in your mouth. So I put it in my mouth, and he goes, it's tripe. And I go, what's tripe? And he goes, pig intestine. I didn't swallow it. I went around and found a potted palm tree and spit it in the back of it. <laughs> oh, God, that is funny. Yeah, no, I, I, no I'm no, i the opposite. I was just a, I, you know, typical tennis player probably, but I just, you know, whatever, try it once. If I liked it, yeah. maybe I'd try it twice, you know, yeah. <laughs> which got me into trouble, but, you know, uh, I think tennis players like excitement or something. I don't know what it is. We all think we're rock stars. And even those of us that are like unknown, you know, and never, uh, you know, has beens and never was. I was and never was, but you know, uh, you still feel like a rock star when you're playing tournaments and this and that. It's a fun life. Well, one of the things when you're playing, I mean, and you're out there on that court, you're the only one on the court and the whole crowd's watching you. So you are yeah. a rock star. That's a good point. That's a good point. More um, golden or other things where the whole team's on the field. This is, you're out there by yourself. Yeah. And I think it should stay that way. I think the idea of coaching is, is uh, uh, I think it's an abomination. I really don't think they should allow coaching. I, I can tell you whenever I watch Fed Cup, the gal that gets coached the most almost always loses. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. Nobody needs somebody in their ear saying, you know, you know, you know what you got to do here. You know, you got to don't miss so much. You know, I come mean? down on it. I don't care if the guy's giving signals from up in the crowd um, because I think it's so hard to police it. 
Um, I don't think that they should be able to go down and get in their ear and talk to them and all that sort of stuff. Me neither. But, but the signals have been around for forever. And Oh, and, yeah. And, you know, I mean, and so let it go. I mean, when I was playing in the finals of Wimbledon, Ralston sitting up in the uh, in the box. He's your I, coach then, right? He was your coach at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Dennis. And, and so he's sitting up in the player's box. And, and I have a little flip thing, spiral flip thing. Uh, with different pages numbered with different things and basically such so so do it like stay down <laughs> you, know, don't, you know get bend your knees whatever and and um he might be sitting up there and do like this and that meant page two yeah you know? so i mean but he's not hitting any balls and he's not giving me in-depth discussion and he's not bothering the match um so i don't have a problem with that uh but i do have a problem with coming down or sitting with the player and coaching him on the side, making it like a Davis cup match or something. I, I don't, I don't yeah. think. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, that's the one thing about tennis, you know, it's uh, I've always said this to my players and uh, wherever they were, you know, and, and they did a lot of gold ball type tournaments and, and won a lot of those things. But I always said, you know, there's no place to hide in, in a tennis court. And that's the beauty of it. You really put your heart on the line when you, when you, when you, uh, that's why I always tell the parents, don't give your kids so much shit because just being out there, you know, what kind of huevos that takes to be out there. I used to yell at parents. I'm like, you have no idea, you know, Oh, how come you're missing your first serve? Don't, you know, here, you take the racket, you show me how it's done because yeah. like I said, there's no place to hide and uh, you're all alone out there. And I think that's the beauty. Uh, I really do think that's the beauty. It's sort of like, um, you know, being in the being in the arena, you know, with whether it's with another guy with a sword or whether it's with a bull, there are certain sports that you are all alone out there. Yeah, and and um, no, I think I think it's, the tennis is great for that, and you're a problem solver out there. I think you almost were more of a problem solver back <clears throat> with the equipment that we played with than now. I mean, it's different. Maybe it's just different types of problems. But but one of the things that I found interesting people will, and my daughter asked me, can you still serve in volley today? And I said, sure, but you've got to do it correctly and you've got to have the right volley. <laughs> you know, you that can, is, that's the issue. Not enough good volleyers today. Hand down and you, you can't do that. And, and uh, so you got to have the, a good volley, but also you've got to be a smart server. Um, and, and cause what a lot of times when I played, what I was looking for, I wasn't looking for aces. If you get aces, if you fool the guy, I was looking for bad returns. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so. Sure. Yeah, no, yeah. there's, um, there are some good servers today. I mean, there's no question about it. Oh, they have huge serves. They have great serves. Um, and what they basically do today, the goal is to get a bad return and hit a big forehand. Um, That's right. That's right. They're one, two punch or serve plus one punch. Mm -hmm. My one was the plus one was a volley. No. And, and it's a different thing. But but some people will say to me, well, the returner has these new rackets. And I say, well, I think the server does too. <laughs> so, you know, and, and the whole deal to me is if that guy's standing way back, I'm not going to serve hard. I'm going to serve, try to maybe jam him in his hips a little bit or maybe serve it where a slice that stays low and he's got to run a little ways. That's why I used to play Nastasia. And don't give the guy, maybe hit the serve a little softer, you know, and, and, but you get in closer. If you serve a huge serve, then you don't get in so close. 
So of course, of course, right. You can't yeah. make it to the service line. A couple of things that you got to kind of work with on it. And, and you got to, I tell people when you're serving, you're a baseball pitcher. You know, it's just like a baseball pitcher. Mm -hmm. And what I had when I was serving, I had 12 serves to choose from being, I had a flat serve, which used rarely, but slice, hard slice, slow slice and kick. And you take that to three locations and that's 12 serves. Right. So my idea was that if, if, if they hit a good return, they can't be ready for all 12. So if they hit a good return, it was my fault. <laughs> I hit what they were looking for. And so I got to change it. And in baseball, when a guy hits a home run, have you ever heard the pitcher say, nice hit? They always go, I made a mistake. <laughs> so that's where I looked at it. When they hit a big return, I look at, I made a mistake. And, and um, that changes the mental outlook a little bit on the whole deal when you're coming up to the line. But I, I think uh, my daughter, who's 16 now, has become a pretty good serving volleyer. And, and uh, she's left-handed. She's got a huge serve and a, and a huge slice. <laughs> quick, quick serve like yours on the way up? They like mine. Uh -huh. I mean, it's much like mine. And, and uh, her toss is like just to the point where she's going to make contact. And, and then she, she unloads on it. And, and, um, but she unloads with a big slice that bends way out wide or bends into the hip. And she's begun to know exactly where the return generally comes from that type of serve. Um, and so she's ready for that with the first volley over to the other side of the court or whatever. So it's, um, it's been interesting to see. And, and the thing is, that style of tennis can still work. Well, look at the guy. What's his name? Cressy. Look, uh, yeah, Cressy. I was just going to say, look at Cressy. And even Fed. Fed knows when to use it. Yeah. And it scares the other guys. You know, they don't like it because it's, it doesn't let them get into their rhythm. It's like Gonzalez used to tell me when I was playing board, you've got to get into net early. You know, you got to take the first or second ball and go, just, just go. You can hit a bad one on the first or second ball and he might shank it. But if you get into a rally where you've hit over five balls, then you hit a perfect approach shot, he'll pass you. So you've got to just bust the rhythm and play against all the odds because the way I looked at it was, Bjorn Borg is a better percentage player than me. <laughs> so why play percentage tennis? <laughs> sure, sure. Well, do you remember when do you remember when uh, when Roddick played uh, the finals at Wimbledon against Fed? And yeah. uh, I don't know if you remember this, but I, for me, it was the greatest because I was a huge Agassi fan. Agassi came up into the booth for five minutes. Did you remember that by any chance before when they were warming up? He said the greatest thing I ever, ever heard. And I know you can relate to this. Andre is just great. Like I said, he never goes to the booth, but one time. And yeah. what does he say? He says, well, if I were Andy and the rally goes more than five times over the net, he says, I just park the ball into the stands and start the next point. <laughs> and I just thought to myself, I went like this. I said, Andre, you're the greatest. I mean, that I wish he would commentate more because that was a classic remark. Mm -hmm. And he was right, you know, I mean, but actually, Andy played great that day. He hung in there. And right. um, actually, his big mistake, I think, was when Brad had him start going to net because, yeah, he had a big serve, but his volleys, uh, I used to watch him at La Costa. 
He's not a good volleyer. Sorry. <laughs> he just wasn't. He would volley everything. You know, he'd break his wrist and volley down the center and always step in kind of classically taught, which is not really good. Um, right. You know, because the best volleyers are like Edberg and Sampras and Fed. They have those nice, you know, they angle the racket so you get a little more pop. And he would just push the ball down the center. And he was target practice for these yeah. guys. And I, I, so, you know, serving and volleying isn't the answer if you ain't got a volley, you know what I mean? 